Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Zareen Caldwell on March 29, 2022. Zareen is a journalist and one who has worked in international affairs. As part of her attraction to the world's wisdom and spiritual traditions, she created the Soul Salons podcast and website showcasing teachers and works that she wanted to learn more about and passages that inspired her. We talk about her podcast and play one of her episodes in the interview. I started the interview by asking Zareen where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. So I grew up in largely Anchorage, Alaska. My parents were early Baha'i pioneers to the Aleutian Islands, and we don't have clergy in the Baha'i faith. They pioneered, which meant they were going to an area to establish a Baha'i center in the community and so forth into a new area. So my siblings grew up in the Aleutian Islands. However, they're older than me, and so by the time I came along, really grew up mostly in Anchorage, Alaska. I had Baha'i classes in religious education about the history of the Baha'i faith and the principles of the Baha'i faith. And also my father used to give these in-depth institutes on some of the works, Baha'i scriptures like the Seven Valleys and the Hidden Words. And these are largely mystical writings of the Baha'i faith. And I think that's where I really obtained my love of sort of mystical and philosophical and spiritual teachings, actually, was from this very young age. And in the 1970s, when I was young and growing up, my father used to have these institutes, so I was always surrounded by young people, what you would call hippies, of course, Mm -hmm. at that time. In the 1960s and 70s, of course, there were a lot of young people becoming Baha'is in the United States then, and so I I was in a very, what I would call, dynamic environment. I always remember just a lot of young people being around with guitars, that sort of thing. But that's the kind of religious environment that I grew up in. So the Aleutian Islands, that's the bridge of islands between Russia and Alaska? Correct. It goes down from the southwest corner of Alaska, this chain of islands that heads over in the Bering Straits towards Russia. Yeah. But I was only there about a year, and I was Mm. so young, I don't really remember it very well. Right. It must be pretty remote. Mm -hmm. And so what was it that had them decide to leave the Aleutian Islands and go to Anchorage? Well, they had been in the Aleutian Islands a total of about 10 to 12 years. They were at the post for a while, and my dad ended up building up a big fish and king crab cannery from almost nothing. They had a very difficult life sort of moving out there in the early 1950s, but he built up and sold a fish and king crab cannery, actually. Uh, Other than that, I'm not quite sure. I think just maybe time for a change. How did your mom and dad become Baha'is? So my father's parents or my grandparents were among some of the earliest Baha'is in North America, actually. They became Baha'is in the 1920s. We believe that one of the earliest Baha'i traveling teachers, her name was Martha Root, she came through Helena, Montana and gave a public talk. I understand when I was doing some historical research that my grandparents were the only ones who actually showed up for that talk, but then they 
wrote to what was then a Baha'i Temple Committee in, in North America to get some more information on the Baha'i faith. And my father remembers, you know, his mom reading Baha'i prayers with him as a child, etc. So as a teenager, my father enlisted in the Navy during World War II, and he really wasn't very religious at the time. His parents had become Baha'is, and he knew something about the faith, but he wasn't really religious when he was in the Navy, and again, that was in World War II. But I think he had real difficulties in dealing with what he called man's inhumanity to man. And I think thereafter, he really wanted to devote his life to peace and peace work. When he came back to the United States after his stint in the Navy, it was the late 1940s, he married my mom, who was a devoted Baptist at the time. And he'd go to church with her occasionally, but he also told her about the Baha'i faith. So they both ended up becoming active Baha'is from that period. So your American family dates back three generations of being a Baha'i. Correct. So how did you develop your own Baha'i identity growing up? I had my own very, very positive experiences with the Baha'i faith and Baha'is. Besides my father's institutes in Alaska that I mentioned to you, I traveled with my father in South Asia for a couple of years when I was in middle school. So I was in India and Thailand and the Philippines and met amazing Baha'is from all over the world or amazing people in general and got a very different kind of world view. That experience also launched me on really identifying with being a world citizen, which is a core principle of the Baha'i faith. And I think that experience really shaped and molded my own perceptions and, and future work and everything else. My parents also, unfortunately, they divorced later in their life. My mother also went to Haifa, Israel when I was a teenager. And in Haifa is the Baha'i World Center. So it's the administrative center of the Baha'i community. And my mother was working there and, and I went with her and I was there for a few years. So those really positive, formative experiences with religion and with the Baha'i faith, I think, helped me to develop that identity. But also just on an intellectual level, the Baha'i faith made sense to me. I had had an opportunity to go to churches and mosques and temples and the Baha'i faith promotes religion as progressive, meaning that, you know, there's always going to be new teachers to humanity that educate us on a path to spiritual growth. And Baha'u'llah, the, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, being the most recent of those. But also there's a great depth to the Baha'i writings. It's the first time in religious history that the prophet founder of a religion has written all of the teachings down. And I think there's something like 50,000 tablets, many of which everybody can find right now on Baha'i Reference Library. So just having access to that rich, rich material that's not quite the same in, in other faiths, I think, was another factor. Zareen, you're a journalist. When did you realize you wanted to be a journalist? So English was really my best subject in school. I mean, even when I was in grade school, I liked to make up stories with pictures and everything. In high school, I took, I was in advanced placement English classes, had a really great teacher, but I wanted to do something practical. So journalism seemed like a practical path to use those skills that I already had. At the time when I got my bachelor's degree, it was called mass communications, not journalism per se, although of course I had journalism classes. And initially I went into the public relations agency world and I did that for a few years. 
but I still ended up spending most of my professional life in and around Washington, D.C. The other thing is that you were also in the field of international affairs. Can you describe that for us? I think from my earlier experience of traveling abroad growing up when I was young and so forth, my background and passion was really for all things international. So I felt that was kind of a gap in my studies. And I went back after a few years of working in public relations and did a master's degree in public and international affairs. In my early career experiences, I kind of combined these fields communications, in other words, and international affairs, and I ended up working for several international and non-governmental organizations in communications capacities. For the past 10 years or so, I have largely worked on an international education and exchange program, either directly or indirectly for the U.S. Department of State. And more recently, I've come full circle again a little bit to my journalism roots. I now do some work with an academic publisher called CQ Researcher, and I write in-depth 10,000-word briefs on different global issues, which is very intellectually stimulating, really interesting work. Right now, for example, I'm doing a deep dive on ocean governance. Describe for me what ocean governance entails. Looking at Law of the Sea Treaty, for example, that has been signed by most of the member states of the United Nations and how that developed and used to kind of have more of a freedom of the seas mentality throughout history. But, you know, nation states are claiming more territory, for example, now, and there's different conflicts and debates over the sea and the resources of the sea and everything that happens on the sea. For example, shipping, you know, that's a big deal right now. So how long does it take you to research it and to write such a document? So I usually ask my editor for about three months, three months Mm -hmm. of part-time work, and I have to interview about a dozen different leaders of thought in the field, which I find really interesting. And now, of course, that's all on Zoom, doing kind of deep dives into the research, some of the most recent books that are out there, articles, what's happening in the world, and, you know, interviewing quite a lot of people. The pieces I write are for an academic market, so it's going to colleges and universities primarily around the United States. So it gives other researchers a resource in which to support whatever research they're doing, I suppose. Yeah, and what I like about it, again, this is going back a little bit to sort of old school journalism, which I like. I mean, every brief that I'm working on has several issue questions that you can answer either yes or no to, and I have to have quotes from a person who would be on one side of the debate and a number of quotes from a person on the other side of the debate. This is kind of how journalism used to be. You know, you're presenting both sides of the story and letting the reader make up their mind about things, basically. You've started a podcast and a website called Soul Salons. What inspired you to initiate this project? So I started the podcast in the spring of 2019, and as I say on my website, it examines the lives and teachings of prophets, poets, mystics, and philosophers throughout the ages who have focused on our divine or sacred reality. So even though I'm a Baha'i, I've always been drawn to the world's spiritual and faith traditions overall, and I worked at an interfaith organization at one time as well. I wanted to learn more about these different spiritual teachers that I didn't know very much about. And I also felt 
you know, I needed more spiritual depth in my own life. I had that really growing up from my own background, but felt that some of that was missing. So it was a deep dive into the work and lives of these spiritual guides, if you will, who could offer us real wisdom for our time today. I think humanity has a deep spiritual heritage that we seem to know little about, and there are so many guides that offer for us some new perspectives on that. So the Soul Salons was also inspired by the work of Dr. Suhail Bushrui, who was the first Baha'i Chair for World Peace at the University of Maryland. And he came out with a book called The Spiritual Heritage of the Human Race, which is one of my source books for the podcast. And I'd like to share a, a little statement he made in his inaugural lecture. So he said, we inhabit a world that is running scared from its spiritual roots, in which we seek to hide our emptiness behind the bleak walls of materialism. Yet we can never escape from what is so inextricably a part of our nature, however deeply buried, however sorely burdened, however grievously neglected, the human spirit can never be entirely stifled, eclipsed, or overwhelmed. If ever we are to advance towards a harmonious and integrated global society in a world where peace prevails, it is our soul that must be awakened. So really, my podcast was also endeavoring to, to share this sort of balance that I think we have lost between the material and the spiritual and to look at um, wisdom teachers throughout the ages, both you know major prophet founders to other general spiritual guides, Catholic saints, that kind of thing. And so if people land on your website, Soul Salons, what will they find? So I had the podcast running for almost three years. I first did the episodes about twice a month and later dropped it down to once a month because even a 15-minute episode takes a huge amount of work. I would spend weeks on each one. But overall, over the three years, I completed a total of about 40 episodes. And the link to the podcast is also on my website. But I have now, over this past fall, I've transitioned my podcast to a website, which is www.thesoulsalons.com. And I hope to occasionally add a new episode still, but not on any regular schedule like I was doing with the podcast. So the site features these 40 episodes, and each one is about 12 minutes long, I think, which is more reasonable for people to listen to sometimes. I tell people that it's more interesting to listen to in the car than uh, politics or advertising. And what you will find there is uh, different categories. I've looked at some divine philosophers from Greek and Roman era, for example, from Christian thinkers and saints, from Asian traditions, scholars from Islamic mystical traditions, uh, just some general sages, and of course, some central figures from the Baha'i faith. I generally, for each podcast, I have a historical background, background on whomever I'm writing about, plus a focus on one particular work and passages that I felt were particularly inspiring that we could apply to our lives today in the modern world. Zareen, why did you name the podcast Soul Salons? Yes, there's an established interfaith devotional program run by the Baha'i community in Australia, and it's called Soul Food. And I developed a similar but much smaller program in my community. I was living in Maryland at the time, and I used to have these devotional programs that I called the Soul Salons. I liked the sound and flow of this title, and also for those who have some historical background, they may 
recall that during the Enlightenment period, a salon was a place that people came together to share ideas. So it seemed appropriate, just this idea of hanging out in a salon and talking about the great issues of the day, and in this case, the spiritual truths of our being. So the longer title for my series is actually The Soul Salons Exploring Our Spiritual Heritage. And that drew on the work of Dr. Bushrui, as I mentioned earlier, the Baha'i Chair for World Peace at the University of Maryland. Zareen, why don't you describe for us your favorite podcast from the Soul Salons? So as I mentioned earlier about my early history with the Baha'i faith, I tend to be drawn to mystical works in the Baha'i faith and other traditions. So I probably enjoyed working on those the best, both from the Baha'i faith and the the Sufi faith, which is the mystical side of Islam. Baha'u'llah, again, who I mentioned is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, he has a work called The Seven Valleys. It is based on a Sufi work called The Conference of the Birds. This story is superficially about birds, but they are also a metaphor for our human attachments and struggles and the excuses we all use not to go on our own spiritual quests. Another work that I liked, which is kind of a fun story, is called The Universal Tree and the Four Birds by a Muslim scholar named Ibn Arabi. It's about different birds on the tree of life that represent different stages of spiritual growth. You'll recognize that I guess a lot of my favorite episodes were ones that told a story behind them that had metaphors that meant something to our spiritual advancement. I also enjoyed writing and working on episodes on more contemporary spiritual guides. There was the Catholic monk Thomas Merton and the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran. In these stories, as well as several others that I feature, or episodes rather, you see the very human struggles that these individuals were going through related to their own spiritual quest. And I can share a couple of quotes from those if you like. Sure. So Thomas Merton, for example, said, The earthly desires men cherish are shadows. There is no true happiness in fulfilling them. Why then do we continue to pursue joys without substance? Because the pursuit itself has become our only substitute for joy. Unable to rest in anything we achieve, we determine to forget our discontent in a ceaseless quest for new satisfactions. So what does that quote mean to you, Zareen? I think it's very relevant to our time. Thomas Merton was writing back in the 60s, not that long ago, but, you know, we're constantly out there searching for new things. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the hill sort of idea. I don't think we know how to just be joyful with what is. It's certainly something I've struggled with. I suppose many people do. And he points out a lot of modern angst, I suppose, is the word that we all have. What are we really looking for? like living in the moment instead of Mm -hmm. always thinking about more in the future or something. True. And a lot of the episodes I do on Asian traditions as well, I feature Taoism and Confucianism and, and a couple of different episodes on Buddhism, that living in the now idea is very much a common theme for those episodes as well. You have another quote for us? I do. And Khalil Gibran, who was a Lebanese poet... I have a quote from him. He says, It is a perfect world, a world of consummate excellence, a world of supreme wonders, the ripest fruit in God's garden, the master thought of the universe. Why should I be here, O God? I, a green seed of unfulfilled passions, a mad tempest that seeketh neither east nor west, a bewildered fragment from a burnt planet, 
Why am I here, O God of lost souls, thou who art lost among the gods? So why am I here? <laughs> yeah, why are we all here? But like I said, it conveys Khalil Gibran's own personal struggle in trying to find his own path to the divine. And mm -hmm. several of the teachers that I feature in my episodes are in that struggles. And also, even in the soul salons, I will comment here and there about my own perspective on what I think about some of these passages and so forth. Not to focus on that unduly, but just to maybe connect it with some experiences that listeners are having. I want to share another quote that I, I happen to be, this is not in my podcast or my website, but I was thinking about the balance between the material and the spiritual side of our natures, and I happened to come across this quote from the Baha'i Faith the other day that addressed that. And it says, is it not astonishing that although man has been created for the knowledge and love of God, for the virtues of the human world, for spirituality, heavenly illumination, and eternal life, nevertheless, he continues ignorant and negligent of all of this. I mean, there's so much to our reality, I think, that we're missing. So the podcast and the website is meant to just say, let's go back to our core. I asked you to select a podcast that we could feature actually on the interview. Which episode did you select? So I selected uh, again another mystical work from the Baha'i Faith called The Hidden Words. This was revealed by the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah. There are about 120 passages, very short. They're fabulous to read sort of morning and evening as little meditations and if you're interested I encourage you to look at Baha'i Reference Library to find those. But it's really about God's relationship with man and then what our purpose is in this life and the, the qualities we're here to develop in the world. I share some of the passages from the hidden words, but also talk a little bit about the history of how they were revealed, etc. Zareen Caldwell, welcoming you to the beginning of Season 4 of The Soul Salons. I've titled this episode, All You Need Is Love, because I feel that's what all of us need more of at the moment. I don't know about you, but 2020 has been a particularly lonely year for so many of us. Loneliness is an epidemic, especially in the West, I think, and it has been made that much worse by the crazy shutting down of societies that many of us have experienced. One spiritual work that sustains me when I am feeling down is a book called The Hidden Words, which is one of the seminal mystical works in the Baha'i Faith. I have picked it up at various times in my life, and it seems fresh to me every time, perhaps because I feel like I get new insights with every reading. This text covers a number of different themes, but God's love for us is definitely one of them. Let me just read you a couple of passages on this idea. O son of man, it begins, veiled in my immemorial being and in the ancient eternity of my essence, I knew my love for thee. Therefore I created thee, have engraved on thee mine image, and revealed to thee my beauty. And here's another one. O son of man, I loved thy creation, hence I created thee. Wherefore do thou love me, that I may name thy name and fill thy soul with the spirit of life. To me, it's like God is reaching out to us and asking, 
What happened to this deep relationship that I created you for? Most of the approximately 150 passages in the Hidden Words are not much longer than the ones I just read. You can probably read the whole book in an hour or two, but I recommend downloading the Hidden Words from the Baha'i Reference Library online and meditating on about one passage a day. That's time well spent. Another theme that I find uplifting in this work is a reminder of our eternal nature. During a time when many people have probably thought more about death than they usually do, the following passage may be reassuring. O Son of Man, it begins, Thou art my dominion, and my dominion perisheth not. Wherefore fearest thou thy perishing? Thou art my light, and my light shall never be extinguished. Why dost thou dread extinction? Thou art my glory, and my glory fadeth not. Thou art my robe, and my robe shall never be outworn. Abide then in thy love for me, that thou mayest find me in the realm of glory. You may have noticed that the three verses I just read all began, O son of man. I think it's important for me to clarify that this is used as a collective noun, meaning humanity. And here's another verse with the same ideas about humanity's divine heritage. This one starts, O son of spirit. O son of spirit, my claim on thee is great, it cannot be forgotten. My grace to thee is plenteous, it cannot be veiled. My love has made in thee its home, it cannot be concealed. My light is manifest to thee, it cannot be obscured. The idea that we are a reflection of God's light appears in both of these passages. Love is mentioned again too, here expressed as the ultimate love between the Creator and Created One. If I were to summarize the whole hidden words, I would probably say that it revolves around God telling us how loved we are and how much capacity we have, and yet similarly questioning why we have turned aside from his path and sunk, in many cases, into a life of heedlessness and pride. I studied the hidden words from a fairly young age, actually. My father led institute programs on the mystical works of the Baha'i faith, like the Seven Valleys and the Hidden Words. As I look back on it now, it was an amazing spiritual education to have. Before I go back to some of the amazing passages in the Hidden Words, let me start with an initial historical picture of this work. Baha'u'llah was the book's author. He is the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith. His name is actually an Arabic title, meaning the glory of God. I did an episode on him and another one of his mystical works called The Seven Valleys in the first season of the Soul Salons. As I reiterated then, Baha'is believe that Baha'u'llah delivered a new revelation from God to humanity, and in fact that he was the promised one of many prior religions. In his copious writings, he outlined a framework for the development of a global civilization that takes into account both the spiritual and material dimensions of human life. His teachings are largely focused on unity and peace, but as he was seen as a threat to the established political and religious order of the time, he endured 40 years of imprisonment, torture, and exile. The Hidden Words was written in Baghdad after Baha'u'llah was released from a period of intense suffering in prison. This was in roughly 1857 to 1858. The work was believed to have been dictated to his secretary in different sections while he strolled along the banks of the Tigris River. The text was written in both the Persian and Arabic languages. It was originally called the Hidden Book of Fatima. There's a background story there, too. 
Fatima was the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad and one of the leading figures of the Islamic dispensation. She was reportedly distraught at her father's passing, and according to the traditions of Shia Islam, the angel Gabriel came to her and revealed passages to bring her comfort and solace. The hidden words, said Baha'u'llah, were the same verses revealed to Fatima. The first passage of the hidden words hints at this mystery and ancient heritage. It says, This is that which hath descended from the realm of glory, uttered by the tongue of power and might, and revealed unto the prophets of old. We have taken the inner essence thereof and clothed it in the garment of brevity, as a token of grace unto the righteous, that they may stand faithful unto the covenant of God and may fulfill in their lives his trust, and in the realm of spirit obtain the gem of divine virtue. I love the idea of a hidden book that has once more been shown and revealed to mankind. I feel like every generation forgets what we were supposed to learn and we have to start all over again. One of the subsequent leaders of the Baha'i faith said that through the hidden words, spiritual realities and truths have been once more reinterpreted and revealed afresh to mankind. I'm going to share with you one of my very favorite passages from the hidden words, and it touches on this theme of forgetting who we are. It says, O my friends, have ye forgotten that true and radiant morn, when in those hallowed and blessed surroundings ye were all gathered in my presence beneath the shade of the tree of life, which is planted in the all-glorious paradise? Awestruck, he listened as I gave utterance to these three most holy words. O friends, prefer not your will to mine, never desire that which I have not desired for you, and approach me not with lifeless hearts defiled with worldly desires and cravings. Would ye but sanctify your souls, ye would at this present hour recall that place and those surroundings, and the truth of my utterance should be made evident unto all of you. Some interpretations of this passage are that it refers to humanity turning aside from the Baha'i revelation when the voice of God called again to mankind. But for me personally, it speaks to a pre-existent place and time that our souls once knew. Don't we all spend most of our lives in a way longing to return to our true home? In this verse, though, Baha'u'llah also talks about our souls being defiled with worldly desires and cravings. And this is a common theme throughout the hidden words as well. The book is definitely like a love poem, but on the other hand, it is also fairly direct about where we may fall short. Here are a couple of passages as examples. O son of earth, know verily the heart wherein the least remnant of envy yet lingers shall never attain my everlasting dominion, nor inhale the sweet savors of holiness breathing from my kingdom of sanctity. O son of being, How couldst thou forget thine own faults and busy thyself with the faults of others? Whoso doeth this is accursed of me. Lest we think that our various baser deeds are not noticed, there are some powerful and somewhat scary passages in the hidden words that imply that is definitely not the case. Here's one. O ye peoples of the world, know verily that an unforeseen calamity followeth you and grievous retribution awaiteth you. Think not that which ye have committed hath been effaced in my sight. By my beauty all your doings hath my pen graven with open characters upon tablets of chrysolite. I'm no gem expert, but I understand that chrysolite, a yellow-green gem also known as perudot or topaz, is one of the hardest naturally occurring minerals. 
So I guess the point here is that engraving one's deeds on tablets of chrysolite would be pretty permanent. I have to say that I am fairly horrified by this idea of my deeds being displayed on tablets of chrysolite. I certainly hope it's not any kind of public presentation. This is a part of going to the next world that I'm not particularly looking forward to. I guess the bigger point here is that if we knew everything that we said and did was being recorded, would, would we live our lives differently? We've all hurt other people and been hurt in return. But as I finish up this episode, I really don't want to dwell on the negative. The Hidden Words does call us to account for our actions, to be sure, but as I said in the beginning, it also talks about love as the genesis of our creation. As I said earlier, I feel like much of the Hidden Words is about God calling us home, and that's the reassuring part for me, and it points to the higher destiny that we were meant to fulfill, if we can win the battle over our own selves, that is. In a book about the revelation of Baha'u'llah, author Adib Teherzadeh notes that the aim of the hidden words is to detach man from the mortal world and to protect his soul from its greatest enemy, or itself. The book, he says, provides a means by which the bird of the human heart can cleanse its wings from the defilement of this world and resume its flight into the realms of God. The hidden words is not merely a book to be read, but rather one should aim to put into practice its counsels. Here's a last verse to reflect upon. O my servant, abandon not for that which perisheth an everlasting dominion, and cast not away celestial sovereignty for a worldly desire. This is the river of everlasting life that hath flowed from the wellspring of the pen of the merciful. Well is it with them that drink. I'm speaking with Zareen Caldwell, a journalist and one who has worked in international affairs. As a part of her attraction to the world's wisdom and spiritual traditions, she created the Soul Salons podcast and website, showcasing teachers and works that she wanted to learn more about and the passage that inspired her. And we just listened to an episode entitled, All You Need Is Love. Serene, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to share your work and the podcast, The Soul Salons, with us. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Zareen Caldwell, journalist and creator of the podcast, The Soul Salons, which you can find on the soulsalons.com website. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
sun will rise like sands of time. A thousand stars watch the moon rise on mystic shores of timeless delight. God suffice, God sufficeth All things above, things above, above all things Say, say, God, God suffice, God sufficeth All things above, things above, above all things Nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God sufficeth 
Nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God suffices. Nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God suffices. Verily He is in Himself, in Himself. Verily He is in Himself, in Himself. Verily He is. Say, say, God, God suffice, God sufficeth. All things above, things above, above all things. Say, say, God, God suffice, God sufficeth. All things above, things above, above all things. Nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God suffices. Nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God suffices. Nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God suffices. Verily He is in Himself, in Himself. Verily He is in Himself, in Himself.
feel the sun on the window pane And now I know that I'm living Lights went out on the boats in the bay Just before the sun was risen So Friday morning has come again And oh what a gift I've been given All my time is my own today And what else could I have chosen But to give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I landed Slipping away on the empty handed all I can call these things my own when I give them to you I hold the earth in the palm of my hand so say the wise and the sages I've got nothing but I'm working God's land I've got the wealth of the ages Wear the clothing of the common man Doing the work of the angels Time flies like fine grains of sand My life is a turn of the pages And I'll give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time Feel of a hometown where I landed, slipping away out the empty handed. So all I can call these things my own, then I give them to you. Soon will our handful of days be gone And we shall pass empty-handed Into the hollow that is dark With those who speak no more It's only my life till it's ended And it's only what love demanded To give it to you like giving away what isn't mine Can I really claim my life or my time Or even the hometown where I landed The slipping away of the empty handed So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you And if I can call these things my own and I give them to you Can I really call these things my own?
boy sees his father bound in chains Exiled to foreign lands Never to see his home again The bond of love between them one can't explain A bond forged through love and pain Like drawn to a flame Loyal moth guards his name, guards his name. Though he suffered many hardships, this mighty branch stood. Loyal and firm The bond between them Was never broken Words of love need Not be spoken Like drawn to a flame This loyal moth Guards his name Guards his Still feel the beating of his heart, and when the flame had no more life, he said he not deserve, but he chose to sacrifice, like drawn to a flame. This loyal mom. Guards his name, guards his name. Like drawn to a flame, this loyal mouth guards his name. Guard 
Take 